Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The book of Psalms has been the praise and prayer book of the people of God for thousands of years. Our Psalms mini-series dives into a few noteworthy Psalms which teach us how to pray through the difficult seasons of life. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. Now here's this week's message. Good morning. My name is Pastor Eric, as Adam just mentioned. Yes, I'm the associate pastor at Cornerstone Christian Reformed Church, and it's good to be with you all this morning uh, here among one another uh, in the presence of God. The Holy Spirit is here, and he has already uh, called us to worship. He's, he's um, through Adam, prayed for our needs and interceded for us with the Father, and now we get to hear the word. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 88. Psalm 88, uh, if you brought your Bibles with you. The words will also be on the screen. Uh, the translation I'm using is the NIV 2011, um, but I'm sure if you brought a different translation, it will track fairly well. Psalm 88, starting at verse 1, says this. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I'm overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all of your waves. You have taken me, taken from me my closest friends. You have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to the Lord, to you, Lord, every day. I spread my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me, friend and neighbor, and darkness is my closest friend. This is the word of the Lord. Gateway Community Church, thank you for having me. What a note to begin a sermon on. Darkness is my closest friend. At Cornerstone right now, the church that I'm from, we are in the middle of a sermon series on the Psalms. I actually got this sermon series idea from you guys. Uh, I was told there's going to be a sermon series on the Psalms in the summer, and then later I was told, well, actually, it might not be happening, but we already took that idea at Cornerstone and did our whole Psalm sermon series. So, And then I was told a bit later, it sounds like next week Adam is going to be preaching on the Psalms again, so I'm not sure how many uh, weeks you're going to be spending in the Psalms. But 
however many weeks, uh, the Psalms are an opportunity for us, and preaching and thinking and meditating on the Psalms are an opportunity for us as Christians to dive into an aspect of the Word that we don't often get to dive into. The Psalms are a source of inspiration to Christians, to Jews, and even non-religious people, and they've been so throughout generations and generations. For thousands of years, the Psalms have been a source of inspiration all the way up to the present day. I don't know if you recognize in the last uh, verse of this psalm, the si- uh, echoes of this Simon and Garfunkel tune, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, almost certainly Paul Simon, the, the writer of that psalm, is, is drawing on his, his Jewish upbringing. And he's pulling through this psalm that, pulling on this psalm that has resonated with him. Whatever his faith journey has led him to today, these psalms are still kicking around in his heart and in his mind to the point where he is willing to use them in contemporary music. And if that doesn't sound very contemporary, uh, Simon and Garfunkel, uh, uh, Paul Simon actually just released uh, an, an album a couple months ago called Psalms. So the Psalms are still uh, um, kicking around in his heart to this very day. I think he's in his 80s now. Now, if you don't uh, recognize the reference, that's totally fine. The Psalms have been a a major influence on notable theologians. John Calvin, for example, was a big fan of the Psalms. Uh, People who, who love the theologian John Calvin know that some of his best work was his commentaries on the Psalms. And he didn't just write one volume, he wrote many volumes just on these 150 short Psalms, unpacking them and diving into them and finding them to enrich his own theology as he shares his theology with us. Another famous theologian who was around in the time of World War II during Adolf Hitler's reign tried to... to, uh, join a resistance movement to stop Adolf Hitler, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He famously called the Psalms the prayer book of the Bible. So we get some time today and and, and next week, and perhaps beyond that for you guys, to, to and girls, to dive into the Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible. So why are the Psalms then so universally enjoyed and employed by all sorts of people in so many different situations. Why do the Psalms bring out a fresh side of our preaching, our teaching, and our theologizing, our commentary writing? Why do Psalms to this day inspire Christian hymns of worship and thoughtful secular songs as well? I think one reason for this is the Psalms give us an opportunity to engage with parts of ourselves that we would rather just avoid. The messy parts, the emotions, the doubts, the fears, the anxieties that good Christians are not supposed to have. They give us license as a culture to dive in to culturally unacceptable forms of lament, of grief, and pain. 
This psalm, Psalm 88, as you may have heard, it may have, as, as we listen to it, it may have pushed your buttons a little bit. It may have thought, what is a psalm that is so negative that ends on such a depressing, dark note, darkness is my only friend, what is that psalm doing in the Bible? When I think about the culture that we find ourselves in, the culture of the 21st century, there are many different ways to define and understand our culture today, but one undeniably true fact about our culture is that we are in a feel-good culture. Our culture is obsessed with feeling good, whether it's instant gratification that comes from playing a video game or, or watching Netflix, one Netflix episode after another. But even in the way that we talk about mental health in our culture, the goal is always to feel good. And don't get me wrong, good mental health is extremely important for Christians and non-Christians alike, but when feel-good culture is taken to the extreme, be feeling good becomes the only important value. And then that leads to the total avoidance of negativity, of negative thoughts and feelings, rather than a healthy engagement with them, as a good mental health counselor would tell you. And certainly, as the Psalms will show us, as God shows us through the Psalms. Feel-good culture is the reason why Psalm 88 is so controversial. We feel the weight of it, don't we, when we see it ends so darkly, sadly, and that's the end? That, that pushes our buttons. And when that pushes our buttons, when that rubs us the wrong way, when that gives us a negative feeling inside, that, that's, that doesn't feel right, that feels wrong, that feels like that shouldn't be in the Bible. When that happens, that tells us as a church that we have given into even just a little bit to feel-good culture as well. You may or may not know this, but Jesus was not a proponent of feel-good culture. Certainly, Jesus, if he were around today, would be for good mental health. And the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Jesus in our midst today, wants us to be healthy. And we see in the life of Jesus that he often withdrew to solitary places to pray. He cared much for his well-being. He took good care of the physical human body that he was given. But when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, following his loving Father God in carrying out God's wonderful plan of redemption for the whole world, if Jesus' end goal, if Jesus' only goal was to feel good, there was no way he would have gone through with a cross. But Jesus' end goal was not to feel good. Jesus' only goal was to be obedient to God, his loving Father, no matter the cost. In the same way, so the Psalms, particularly Psalm 88, speaks to our feel-good culture and calls it to an even higher good. More important than feeling good, we are called to a relationship with the living God. We are called to a relationship with the creator of the universe. 
a relationship of love and, yes, joy and peace, which often manifests in our lives as very good feelings. But they're more than that. Like any relationship, a relationship with the living God can cause us frustration at times. It can bring about sanctification that is the result of a long struggle of bitter growth and dying to ourselves. Like anyone who's in any relationship for any period of time will tell you, it's not always easy. And our relationship with God is the same. It doesn't always feel good. There's a philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard that I studied when I was in university. He was a Christian philosopher who lived in the 18th century in Denmark. It was a time not too different from ours. Yes, he lived in a time where 98% of the people in his culture went to church. They called themselves Christian. So that certainly seems like a very different time from ours. But he also lived in a time in which almost everybody thought that what God wanted for their lives was for them to be comfortable, for them to be middle class, and for them to be happy, to put on a good exterior, to be a nice person, and not get caught up in negativity. Does that sound a little bit more like our culture? Does that sound maybe a little bit more like our churches? How many of us view church in that same way? How many of us feel like on Sunday morning, the point of church is to come, put on a good exterior, be presentable. When we're getting our families out the door, we, we, we wash their face and we, we get them all presentable and we tell them, okay, be on your best behavior for the next hour, right? And then we can come home again in an hour and be our messy, uh, confusing, uh, angry, fighting selves again, all right? Maybe that's not you. I certainly feel that temptation sometimes in the morning to get up and be presentable, be my best self. And then I come home and I go, ah, ah, I can be myself again. If we're honest, we're all guilty of thinking and living this way from time to time, and we're all guilty sometimes even more so doing this in the church. And when we do that, it's because feel-good culture has permeated the church. The church, the one place where we're supposed to be free to confess our sin, to be broken people before a loving Savior even then, in the church, we still give in to culture's demands to put on a good exterior because our culture says you're supposed to feel good. And even our Christian culture sometimes says you're supposed to feel good. And if you don't feel good, you got to pretend that you feel good. You got to fake it till you make it instead of admitting that you're broken and in need of a savior. Soren Kierkegaard argued in one of his books that the worst kind of despair, the worst kind of despair was from the person, the despair of the person who didn't even know that they were in despair. The worst kind of despair was the despair of people who were never honest with themselves enough for a moment to admit that they're in despair. For Kierkegaard, the worst type of despair 
was the people that thought that they were happy. Feel-good culture and feel-good Christians. And too often in the church, we give in to the worst kind of despair, denial. Denial of our suffering, denial of our grief, denial of our own very real and personal pain. Why? Because that's not what good Christians do. If we just prayed enough, we would have it all together at this point. So, so let's just pretend we have it all together because we don't pray enough. But if we did, we'd have it all together. So if we pretend that we have it all together, maybe people will think that we're people of prayer. Let me tell you, Jesus was one of the best examples of frequent praying, and there was many times in Jesus' life where his disciples thought, this guy does not have it all together. We need to rise up and defend him with our swords. We need to, they didn't understand. Kierkegaard and the psalmist would also beg to differ that that's not what good Christians do. We worship a God who hears, the psalm teaches us. A God who not only hears our private sufferings, but a God whose Holy Spirit calls us to express our deepest despair and calls us in the psalms to express it to him. Psalm 88 teaches us to be honest about that darkness. And it teaches us that honesty about that darkness is the only way to true wholeness and healing. Flannery O'Connor, the Catholic writer, Christian writer as well, she was accused of her work not being very wholesome. She was told, your work's not wholesome enough. And she always said that for my work to be wholesome, it needs to be whole. It needs to encompass the whole of humanity. It's light and it's darkness. And for her stories about God to be true and wholesome, they had to first be whole. Psalm 88 calls us to be whole people. The first thing Psalm 88 does is it invites us to express our despair. But why? Psalm 88 starts with a beautiful, absolute truth with, with which to ground the rest of the psalm. The psalmist says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. So already we know Psalm 88 is not just a psalm that's there to vent or get something, the psalmist, off his chest. Already we know from that first verse, the psalmist is doing all of this expression before God, in front of the God, in front of God, as a declaration of his faith in God, that God is the God who saves him. All of this is not despair, is not coming from a place of not knowing God, of not being connected to God, of not having a deep, intimate relationship with God. It is the opposite. This psalm is coming from a place of knowing God as the God who saves him. So right off the bat, we know we can express our despair as a people, as a Christian people, because our God is a saving God who delivers us from sin, 
from shame, from darkness, from pain. And yet, it is the power of that saving God that, contrary to the way feel-good culture works in the church, our saving God gives the psalmist the freedom to not have it all together, to not put on a good exterior, to not feel good. The entire rest of the psalm is devoted to expressing this inner darkness and pain. The psalmist says, day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I'm overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who, die, who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. The psalmist is in the pit of despair. Notice he says he is like those who are cut off from God's care. He knows he's not cut off from God's care, but nevertheless, he feels like he is. He knows that God is a God who saves him, and yet he's so overwhelmed by his troubles, he says, to the point of death. He says he's like the slain who lie in the grave, whom the Lord remembers no more. And then the psalmist goes a step even further. He doesn't just express his despair about his life and his circumstances. He expresses his despair about God to God. He says, God, you have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all of your waves. You have taken me from my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Once again, we hear the faithfulness of the psalmist spreading out and calling out his hands to God. But we also see in Psalm 88, the psalmist teaching us that God wants us to express our despair to him, our dark thoughts, our frustrations, but also that Psalm 88 wants us to express our despair about God to God. Notice he says, you have put me in the lowest pit. Your wrath lies heavy on me. You have overwhelmed me with all of your waves. Whether or not the psalmist is right about putting all of that on God, that is the way the psalmist is feeling. And the psalms give voice to despair as an important part of our devotional life, of our relationship with the living God. Expressing our despair, even expressing our despair about God to God. Sisters and brothers, where do you in your life feel like God has failed you? Where do you in your life feel like God has deserted you? Have you expressed that to him? Have you let God feel it? the full force of your feelings to him, your despair to him, your frustration with him, even to the point of maybe it sounds like an accusation the psalmist is making about God. Well, the, the Holy Spirit is showing us through the psalm this morning 
that you can do that. You can express that, that to God. You can talk that way to God. He can take it. The fact that Psalm 88 is included in the Bible means God thinks you can talk that way to God. I know that makes us uncomfortable, but that's what the Bible teaches us to do. It says express your despair and express your despair about God to God. He wants to hear it because only then will our prayers and good deeds for God not be meaningless actions, but real and honest reflections of a wholesome life. God wants your honesty. God wants your integrity. God wants your whole being. And Psalm 88 shows us that. The psalmist continues in verse 9. He says, my eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day I spread my hands out to you. Spread your hands out to God, even in, the, in, the heart, in your hearts this morning in worship. Spread your, the hands of your hearts out to God. Express the darkness to God. He can take it. He wants to hear it. The psalmist continues in verse 11. He says, is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? In the Psalms, we find a God who hears our despair, who calls forth in us to express our despair to him, who even calls us to express our despair of him, to him. But deeper than that, in Psalm 88, we find a God who enters into our despair. 16th century theologian Martin Luther believed, and he was right, that every psalm can be read in what's called Christologically, okay? Christologically. And that Christ is the root, root word of that word. Christ is Christ. Christologically means, reading a psalm Christologically means that Jesus Christ can be found in every single psalm. The reason we know that is because Jesus himself rarely goes a few chapters in the Gospels without having a psalm on his lips. In fact, the famous cry from the cross, what we often call the cry of dereliction that Jesus cried when he was hanging on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a direct quote from Psalm 22. Jesus also calls himself the son of man, which is a reference to the book of Daniel, but it's also a reference to Psalm 8. And Psalm 118 is quoted all throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, and then in Acts as well, and I think maybe even, even onwards in the epistles, possibly, revealing Jesus to be, as it says in Psalm 88, the stone that the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And there's way more Psalm references on Jesus' lips throughout the Gospels than that. Those who have Christ-tuned ears have probably maybe already heard a little glimmer of a Christological reading of Psalm 88 when we read the psalm the first time. 
when it said, Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all of your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and made them repulsive to me. This is almost word for word what Jesus must have been feeling in the Garden of Gethsemane when he had God's cup of wrath before him. Deserted by all of his friends, knowing that he was going to bear the wrath of God against the sins of the entire world. Why? The psalm shows us a God who hears our despair, who through, our, who through his Holy Spirit prompts us to speak out our despair. But the psalms also show us a God and point us to a God who bore in the body of Jesus Christ, Jesus, God the Son, Jesus Christ, bore in his body on the cross all of our despair, all of our alienation, all of our alienation from God. God took in Jesus upon his own shoulders. Why did he do that? Why would God do that? Love. Love. John 3.16, one of the most quoted, maybe the most quoted verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. The Psalms show us a God who hears our despair, but it shows us a God, shows us a God who enters into our despair as well. So that when we despair, when we enter into the darkness, we can do so knowing that we don't go alone. We have a trusty guide, a faithful friend who has been where we are, who went before us, who bore our sufferings, our deepest despairing thoughts, and in doing so, opened up the way back to God for all us sinners. Jesus Christ's other name, Emmanuel, means God with us. He revealed that he is God, God with us. And in Christ, God enters into our despair. And in doing so, he transforms it. He transforms it so that we no longer need to be afraid of despair. We can embrace it alongside Jesus and alongside the, the psalmist, we can enter into our despair and we can look God in his loving face and declare in faith, why, God, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and I'm in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They've completely engulfed me. You have taken from me my friend and neighbor, and darkness is my closest friend. We can say all of that in faith. And Gateway Community Church, listen to me. If God can be a God who embraces and takes upon himself the messiness of humanity with all of its sin, with all of its despair, and with all of its sufferings, then by the Holy Spirit, we too can be a church that rejects feel-good culture 
and instead embraces the messiness of humanity, of our fellow sisters and brothers in Christ who suffer, who are in despair. We can form community with them and love them even when we don't have all the answers. Even when we don't have any answers, we can embrace people who are despairing, who are stuck in cycles of sin, but continuously confess and call to God, out to God in repentance for hope. Even when we don't have any answers at all. Because we know a person. We know a person, Jesus Christ, who is here week after week, day after day, moment after moment in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. He's been there. He didn't run from your sin. He didn't run from my sin. He took it upon himself. He doesn't run from our despair. He's not afraid of your despair. He entered into it. He took it upon himself so that God would be right here with us regardless of what we're going through right now. The psalmist asks in verse 11 and 12, is your love declared in the grave? Is your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? Is your love declared in the grave? Is your faithfulness declared in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Is your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? In Psalm 88, the psalmist asked this honest question. And in the Gospels, the cross reveals to us the answer. Yes. Yes, it is. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our Summer Psalms mini-series, where we're learning about how to pray through the difficult seasons of life. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.